How would you answer the question, do plants feel pain? I mean, what would your answer be, yes or no, but also, how would you approach answering it? In terms of how you'd approach answering it, we come up against this this issue of why should we believe something? What counts as evidence in favor or against a proposition? Let's say the proposition is plants feel pain, yes or no. Well, the argument against it is we know that we know what pain is. It's a product of a nervous system. It requires a brain and it requires a nervous system in order to sense pain. Plants don't have nervous systems and so therefore they can't feel pain. It's as straightforward as that. Here's the first issue I wanted to touch on. One objection to that way of thinking, well, not really that way of thinking, one objection to that answer that no, they don't feel pain is it's human-centric. It's self-aggrandizing. We're imagining that we're better than these other creatures. They're too simple. You do meet people who feel that you're speaking that way when you say that, for instance, plants don't feel pain. Someone who is arguing that plants do feel pain or plants do think or something like that, they will also make the argument that I just made about, well, you believe this for this is your motivation for believing that plants don't feel pain or that plants can't think or whatever it is. It's because you have a human-centric view. It's because you're it makes you feel good about yourself to feel like you're different or you're just justifying the way we treat plants or something like that. The issue is the motivation of a speaker is irrelevant to the truth of the claim. It's irrelevant to the veracity of the evidence they're presenting. That's really the issue. So is pain a product of a nervous system? Now, whether or not it makes me feel good about myself to know that I can think and a tree can't, whether or not that belief would make me feel good about myself, (laughs) is irrelevant to whether or not it's true that pain is a product of a nervous system and whether or not trees have a nervous system. So you shouldn't get... Look, the motivations of a speaker are relevant to assessing their credibility. You know, if you don't know the truth of the evidence being presented, if the truth of the evidence, if you're, you're relying on the objectivity, if you're relying on the credibility of a speaker to assess the evidence because you're not in a position to assess it, then you don't want a speaker who is biased. But the evidence itself isn't actually touched in terms of its credibility by the motivations of the speaker. So if you do believe that pain is a product of a nervous system, then it can't be that organisms without a nervous system feel pain. Another issue that comes up when I think about this question is how we deal with the complexity of the world in terms of how we categorize things and how we answer questions like, do plants feel pain? Let's say some of the evidence put forward on the other side of the uh, on the in the side of the proposition the plants do feel pain say well they release certain defensive chemicals when they don't want to be eaten or something like that they're you know over the course of some period of time they will shift their bodies in such a way as to recoil from something let's say there's evidence like that let's say that some of those cases look like pain well they don't have the nervous system to experience pain as we do so now we have this dilemma. Are we going to call it pain or are we going to call it something else? 
And this is what I mean by how do we deal with the complexity of the world in terms of how we categorize things. We could approach it two ways. I just find this interesting. We could say, well, we feel pain and plants don't. Whatever it is, it's something fundamentally different when they're responding to their environment. Or we could say there are two types of pain, or maybe there's more types of pain. There's the pain that organisms with a nervous system can feel, and then there are types of pain experienced by plants. And so we end up having this overarching category of pain with these two different subtypes. We could approach it that way too. This is the basis of a purely semantic argument. When, let's say, two people agree on the phenomena that they are describing, but they're disagreeing on whether or not you're going to call it pain. That's a semantic argument. Purely, are we going to define the word to incorporate this phenomenon? Or are we going to truncate, have a more concise definition for this term that excludes the phenomena that you're referring to? I want to get that out of the way because... I want to talk about beliefs, and I don't think that plants, for instance, have beliefs, and I don't think that more evolutionarily primitive or simple organisms have beliefs. That's an assumption that I'm making that I thought it was possible that somebody else hearing this might object to. So it is an assumption I'm, assumption I'm making. I think it's a, an evidence-based assumption. We know that when you lose the functions of certain parts of your brain, you lose the ability to do certain things. There's a part of the brain that if it's damaged, you can no longer recognize people's faces. Can a plant recognize a face? Well, it doesn't have any of the sensory organs to do that. It doesn't have the brain structure to do that. So you have to have specific brain structures in order to perform specific cognitive and psychological actions. My purpose here is to think out loud about the relationship between actions and beliefs. And by actions, I'm really talking about nervous system-directed actions. And just so you know where I'm going with this, I'm skeptical of the role of beliefs in motivating behavior. So let's just set up a straw man. I'm not sure it isn't entirely a straw man. Some people, I think, do believe this. But let's just imagine that we're reacting to the proposition, we're attacking the proposition, that all, all human actions are products of that human's belief. Actions are products of beliefs. That's the, that's the straw man. Where do, where do nervous system actions begin in terms of the evolution of life? We're imagining a timeline now. We're ruling out unicellular organisms. We're also ruling out multicellular organisms such as plants. So we're looking at the different groups of animals in terms of evolutionary history. And we're going to try to imagine where we think nervous system directed action begins. I don't think it begins with the sponges. So these are the most primitive animals, usually categorized with in the kingdom Animalia, the sponges. They don't have a nervous system, so we're going to exclude them. Now, I don't actually know exactly where we'd pin this. So I'm, I'm, my point here isn't to pick a precise spot. My point is that we know that mammals like ourselves, like dogs and cats and cows, chimpanzees, etc., we know that they engage in actions that are motivated by their, that are controlled by their nervous system. Somewhere along the line, somewhere between sponges and mammals, we have the development of a nervous system that is controlling actions. Wherever you 
place that threshold. The point is, there is a threshold. There's a before and there's an after in terms of the development of nervous systems. The question is, do beliefs appear in evolutionary history? The experience of believing, does that appear right along with nervous systems? And I don't think anyone thinks that that's true. We, we get that a bacterium doesn't have beliefs. Presumably, most of us would accept that a sponge doesn't have beliefs. Does a jellyfish? Does a worm? Does an ant? Does a lizard? I don't know where the threshold is. I think that it comes after, I think it comes later than nervous system directed action. So I don't think if we accept that, say, a spider has nervous system directed action, does it have beliefs about its world? I guess I don't know. It's a really interesting question. But if we go back for, let's say, a worm with a simple nervous system that is causing it to respond to its environment, we can easily imagine that there is a life form that is simple enough where it simply does not have the nervous system structural foundation for beliefs. It has not developed a brain or a large enough brain with sufficient structures, doesn't have the necessary structures to have beliefs. But of course, it has the structures for actions. So we're talking about action appearing in evolutionary history, nervous system directed action, long before beliefs appear. Long before, just before, whatever you think. The point is that it, it precedes the beliefs. So action precedes belief in evolutionary history. Take all of the organisms that you believe have beliefs. Maybe it's just humans. I don't think it should be, but obviously it's going to be limited in some degree. It's not going to incorporate all of the organisms with a nervous system, but take all of the organisms that you believe have beliefs and whose beliefs are can guide their, their nervous system directed actions. My next point is that beliefs, again, we're taking organisms that we believe the act, their actions are motivated by their beliefs. That can't be the case in their early development. So this is my next point. Action precedes belief in the development of an organism. Organisms must act at points in their development where it's not possible for them to have beliefs. Nobody believes that an embryo has beliefs. I don't think. <laughs> Infants can't possibly have developed beliefs that would motivate their actions, such as kicking their feet or giggling. We know that their actions are happening in the absence of beliefs about those actions and beliefs about the world around them that could motivate those actions. Our straw man was the belief that all actions, again, all nervous system-directed actions, are motivated by beliefs. We've now excluded from that possibility. We've now, we've now demonstrated, well, <laughs> except my argument is so-called proof. We've now demonstrated that that can't be true for the organisms with the simplest nervous systems. They must have acted without beliefs, because in evolutionary history, the structures for 
nervous system directed action preceded the development of structures necessary for beliefs about those actions. Okay, so we've excluded certain organisms based on evolutionary history. We've also excluded certain stages of development, even for those organisms that we believe do have beliefs. So if we think that chimpanzees have beliefs, well, we don't think that their embryos, their fetuses, their infants have beliefs. Our straw man has been reduced to the actions of fully developed evolutionarily later organisms such as human beings. So let's take human beings, adult human beings. So now our straw man is this. All of the actions of adult human beings are motivated or directed or guided by beliefs. Let's truncate our straw man even further. So we've got our adult human being. Let's sever their corpus callosum. <laughs> there are people referred to as split brain patients. These are people who've had the two hemispheres of their brain surgically separated from each other. And researchers have been studying these folks for decades, 35 years, something like that. So we've got a lot of data about the experiences of these people. Now, the human brain has two hemispheres. The right hemisphere controls the left side of the body. The left hemisphere controls the right side of the body. Abilities, functions are localized in the brain. Speech, for instance, is on the left side. So when you ask somebody a question, it's the left half of their brain that's answering that question. The most famous researcher in this area is Michael Gazzaniga. You type him into YouTube, you find a bunch of talks and, and whatnot from him. He did one of those Big Think series of, of videos. There's this experiment that's done, or group of experiments that's done. They have the right side of the brain do something. So the right hemisphere engages in an action. And remember that action would, if we're talking about the arms, it would involve the left arm doing something because the right hemisphere controls the left arm. They've found a way to communicate the instructions or question or whatever it may be. They do it in such a way that the left hemisphere can't know about it. I think what they do is they have the image way off to the left of the patient. You know, <laughs> I'm going to make something up here that is not what they do, but it says something, maybe it says grab a key, and it'll say that in writing way off to the left of the patient. It's in such a, a location that only their left eye can see the information, their right eye can't. It's something very, very similar to that. I just, they didn't say grab a key. That's the, that's the piece I'm making up here. So the right hemisphere grabs the key. It's been told, because remember the left hemisphere, the left eye is controlled by the right, the right side of the brain. So we've sent our instructions in into the left eye. It reaches the right hemisphere. The right hemisphere commands the left arm to reach out, grab a key. We've just, in a sense, had a, an interaction with half of this person. The, the key here, I guess that's a pun, the key here is that the left hemisphere 
simply does not know what's going on. The instructions were only to the left eye, which communicated to the right hemisphere. The right eye, communicating with the left hemisphere, sees what happened. So the left hemisphere knows that the right hemisphere grabbed a key. Let's ask the person why they grabbed the key. And remember, the left hemisphere is going to answer that question. So when we ask somebody a question, we're asking their left hemisphere that question. But the left hemisphere has been cut off with all of the possible sources of an answer. The instructions were sent directly to the right hemisphere. The right hemisphere has been severed from the left hemisphere. In other words, the correct answer to the question is, I don't know. The left hemisphere does not know. Here's where things get interesting. We call this part of the brain the interpreter, the part that's going to answer the question, because it never says, I don't know. Again, the correct answer. The left hemisphere apparently doesn't know that it doesn't know, because it'll say something like, well, you know, I lost my keys, and I was taking a look at this one to see if it was, it was my house key. It comes up with stuff. It confabulates. This is different than lying. This part of the brain, the interpreter, what it does is it simply rationalizes our actions. It imposes coherence on our actions. It makes sense of what we do. So here's the question. Was the action of that person in grabbing the key, was it motivated by a belief? We could make an argument that it was. It had a belief about what a key was. It had a belief that it should listen to the instructions to grab the key. Here's what's weird. The person doesn't know that it was that the action was motivated by those beliefs. It's disorienting. I don't know where to go with it exactly, except to say that when we imagine that our actions are guided by beliefs, can it be our conscious beliefs or do we now have to imagine that our actions the adult human being for saying the actions of an adult human being are guided by their beliefs we're now reduced possibly to asserting that the actions of adult human beings are guided by subconscious beliefs let's pile on the dilemmas here there have been experiments in which I think the conditions under which this is done are somebody is having brain surgery. Remember, the brain doesn't feel pain. And so people are usually awake for brain surgery. In fact, I think it's preferred that they be awake because you can get feedback from the patient. They have fMRI, functional magnetic resonance imaging. What this does is it's looking at, they can see in real time where there is activity in a person's brain. Now, you don't have to have your head cut open to do fMRI, but you'll see why it matters that their head is cut open. Using fMRI, scientists can detect when you've made a decision before you've, before you've engaged in the action. 
So let's say Bill is sitting there doing nothing. We're not giving Bill any instructions this time, but Bill's sitting there doing nothing. And then Bill reaches over and picks a key up off the table. What fMRI allows you to do is to see that the decision was made in the, the regions of Bill's brain that controls actions. The decision was made in that part of the brain. And then a moment later, maybe it's a split second, maybe I saw one article talk about seven seconds later. A moment later, Bill engages in the action. The idea here, I think, is supposed to be that the researchers know that you've made the decision before you know. But it occurs to me that that's not quite right, probably. I, th- I don't think you ever know about the decision. I think we have the interpreter goes into action when it sees the decision. That's kind of a sidebar. But the point is, we think that we're making decisions. We think that we're in control of our actions. But here we have the scientist knowing about our actions by looking at our brain before we've engaged in them and supposedly before we know about them. The twist on this is when you have the head cut open and what you do is you can see Bill sitting there. Bill makes a decision. He's going to use his left arm to pick up a key off the table. And when we see that that decision has been made by looking at the fMRI image, What we do is we zap his brain. (laughs) We stimulate his brain in such a way as to cause him to move his right arm to pick something else up, I guess. Now, what happens when we ask Bill why he did that? Bill doesn't say, well, you know, I wanted to move my left arm, but my right moved for some reason. Bill confabulates. Bill does the same thing in this experiment as he did in the split brain patient experiment. And I probably shouldn't be saying Bill because it's not the same guy in each case. This, these latter experiments, these don't involve split-brain patients. We know what the action was guided by. It was guided by the experimenter's action on the brain of the patient. And the patient imagined that they were in control of the action. They imagined that there was a a coherent reason as to why they engaged in the action. What does this all mean? (laughs) I don't know. I don't know if anyone quite knows yet, but it is disorienting if you take it seriously. The more you think about it, it's almost disturbing. So I have some pizza in front of me right now. Before I recorded this, I had some pizza. If you think about it, if you if you can... I'm not sure what this requires. It requires you to be self-aware enough to ask this question and to, to really feel that you never made a decision. But I walked over and picked up a slice of pizza and I started eating it. I never made the decision to do that. And I was, I was aware of that. And you can have the experience of actually just observing yourself engaging in actions. Now, it, it can be disturbing because you start to feel like it starts to feel like a stranger. And that gets weird. So you, you got to kind of <laughs> you got to kind of go back to normal and stop thinking about it. But you can have that experience if you're 
paying enough attention and asking yourself the right questions, such as, when did I decide to do this? You can actually watch your hand moving to your mouth. I, 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 never, I never decided to do this. It's, it's creepy and kind of cool. It has, surely it has profound implications, but I, have, I don't understand what they are yet. It would, I think, turn society upside down. It's usually discussed in terms of free will. Do we really have free will? I, I don't take free will all that seriously anyway. I think maybe I just I've, I confronted that question a long time ago and ended up on the deterministic side of the question. So, but if you haven't thought about it before, then you know this research has disorienting implications for free will. Michael Gazzaniga is a proponent of free will. I've read a little bit of what um, he has to say about it. I think he has a book specifically on free will. I think that's what I, I read, at least portions of it. And with that. I've apparently decided, or some part of me has decided, that we're all done here.